Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Cool. Well, we're here uh, in a series um, called Stride, and the purpose of the series is uh, for us as believers to be able to just navigate uh, the choices, the many choices that are in front of us, uh, with a little bit more confidence, not to be arrogant or bombastic, but to be people who uh, can confidently follow uh, Jesus, who can confidently go in the way that he's calling us to go, rather than uh, as as sort of Luke warns Theophilus, uh, tottering about in our faith, like wobbly, like not standing strong and going about in every uh, crazy direction. In fact, the word stride uh, means to walk with long, confident steps in a specified direction. Uh, Have you ever tried uh, taking uh, your kid into Walmart on a Saturday? Or even been there yourself on a Saturday, like when it's busy and there's sales and things are going on. Like I'm the kind of shopper who, when I have to go in there to get something, uh, I know maybe I've got to go get some motor oil at the back corner or I need to get something out there in the store. I need to get eggs or milk. And and I'm like a beeline kind of guy. I'm like, okay, I'm going there. I'm not shopping around. If I have to go down an aisle, let's go to the end of the aisle, park the cart, zip down, come back out to where the cart is and keep going and get there and get it done. Uh, I am purposeful and I am striding. I do not like meander through uh, a place like Walmart. And I wish I was like that in my faith. In my faith, I'm very much different. I'm very much like, Lord, have mercy, Toby, please forgive me. I am very much like my son, Toby, who does a very different trajectory uh, through uh, Walmart on any given day. I remember when Toby was really little, we'd asked him to uh, pick out a gift for a friend. And we've, we've actually got a better deal these days. Now his friends, they give each other 20 bucks and a bag of candy. So Toby shopping for his friend is super easy. But when he was younger, it was like, I got to find that perfect toy and I got to find that toy for under this price and the path Toby took to find it like I would walk into that toy section I'm like down the aisle there it is boom perfect price is good your friend's gonna love it let's go and Toby is like like looking all over the place like he's looking at everything at every car he's taking them off he's trying to choose like which guy with a lightsaber like uh which Star Wars thing or which uh, Nerf gun or whatever it is like he's he's like looking all over uh, we are not achieving our purpose we are not achieving it with any <laughs> kind of efficiency whatsoever we're doing anything but stride when when Toby is walking through the store as a little boy because of all of the choices and all of the options that are there for him he is tottering about the store like distracted by this thing over here and distracted by that thing over here and it is a slow and laborious process uh we don't want to be like that in our faith we don't want to be people who are distracted we actually want to be people who worship jesus with incredible clarity with a single-minded devotion. And we're actually, as people, designed like that. We're, as people, made to worship the one and only God, the creator of the universe, to see him and value him and elevate him and lift him up and be after him with our whole hearts. But the reality, in terms of the way we go through life, 
it's clear that he is for some of us if we're if we're honest if i'm honest about how i spend my time sometimes he is one option among many it's almost impossible for us to filter out uh the uh noise uh, to be focused on education, be focused on the songs I want to listen to, the toys I want to play with, COVID, uh, the stock market, my finances, the entertainment, watching movies, whatever it is, any of these things to symbolize, you know, various things that we are passionate about. And they're not always bad things, but they definitely end up in our thinking and in our minds being somewhere on the same level of Jesus because we schedule him in amongst them, just like all the rest. We just fit him in with these things as though very often sometimes he's on the same level. We're not striding confidently towards him with purpose. Uh, you only have to look at our phones uh, and look at our social media feeds to understand this. Um, there is infinite images that you can just scroll by in Instagram, in Facebook, or whatever it is, Twitter, whatever it is that you're looking at. And infinite appeals to you for your time, for your energy, ultimately for your dollars. But even more than that, uh, our social media feeds are making a, an appeal for our allegiance. Even the news feeds are making an appeal for our allegiance. I want to just read you a mission statement that just scrolled quickly across my Instagram feed uh, this week. Let me just read this to you. Uh, our mission is to foster a spirit of preparedness. In the great tradition of our nation's military, this is an American company, I'm assuming. Well, I, why don't I assume that Canada doesn't have a great tradition in our military? This is definitely an American. This, is, but this is an American ad. So, it's to foster a spirit of preparedness in the great tradition of our nation's military, it is our passion to see that every patriot should live a life that is prepared. Prepared. Isn't your heart starting to like rise up? Yes. Uh, whether you. Uh, your life's journey takes you to the office and the mall or through disaster and danger to fight in the trenches for our freedoms. Our cargo pants are designed to carry what you and your family need to survive and endure until the victory is won. <laughs> Like, that's some hardcore cargo pants, right? Like, that's crazy. And it's not, like, selling you on the price of the pants. It's not trying to sell you on the quality of the pants. Uh, they, they get to that. What they're selling you on is your heart's allegiance to your nation makes you need those pants, right? Like, I am a better American if I have those pants. I'm a better Canadian if I have those pants. I'm a patriot if I have those pants. So everything from the simplest products we look at are, are very often appealing to more than just uh, our sense of value, but appealing uh, to our hearts and trying to capture it. Uh, we're being recruited to everything. Uh, we're being recruited to yoga mats. Uh, we're, we're, it's, it's just, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's everything. I'm just going to show you, this is just, and some of these things are important causes. Like some of these things are incredibly valuable. These are things that we should know about and be interested in, but this is just in the last couple of days, my social media feed. I just took a note to, to see 
help me see, you know, who was appealing to me for my time and attention and interest. We have anti-vaxxers, pro-vaxxers, anti-maskers, pro-maskers, right? We have Republicans and Democrats. Nobody knows that I'm a Canadian for some reason. Uh, we are told to shop local, uh, to support our local hospital, to be pro-business, uh, to have autism awareness, uh, to donate blood, that's important, uh, to, again, the hunger stop, help uh, local people in hunger. Uh, there's the don't let Trudeau take away your guns lobby, that's really important as well. Um, there's the biopic issues, right, or BIPOC issues, so um, black, indigenous, people of color, like that's, you know, threaded through so much of our social media, being aware of how to deal with issues like systemic racism in our culture, uh, homelessness, environment, uh, there are people who would call you to inner beauty, like take the makeup off and just be natural. And then the next slide is somebody who's telling me how I can get a six pack and I can look like totally ripped in just two weeks, right? Like with these, all these contrasting and competing values. Uh, there's like identify the antichrist, stop big telecom, Canadian farmers, the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, find lost pets, find this lost pet, then find the owner of this lost pet that we have found, right? And there's Mormons and the worst cults of all, like veganism and hockey. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal, right? Like, we've got this uh, constant uh, draw to various things, uh, pushing us and pulling us and drawing our attention. It's just a few things that come through. I want to read you a kind of terrifying poem. Uh, by, by this uh, famous American poet uh, named Sylvia Plath. Uh, it's a beautiful uh, story in a way. Uh, she wrote beautiful poetry. Uh, she was born in the 30s and died of suicide in uh, the, I think, I believe 1964. Um, she was a rising star in the literary world, um, but she struggled with depression her whole life. Um, and the following lines speak uh, to part of the emotional paralysis that she experienced as a person. Uh, she says this, she says, I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind. Which of the figs I would choose? I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest. And as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, and one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet. That is for many people in our culture, many people in our world, exactly how we live. There is a plurality of choice that makes it almost impossible for us to wholeheartedly choose anything. Uh, we totter along through life, as Luke is hoping Theophilus wouldn't, uh, from one shiny bauble to the next. And our hearts are fractured by it. And deep down, we are longing for something or for someone to which we can wholly and completely connect. Ultimately, uh, we're made to worship. As Christians, we've been taught about Jesus, um, but that distracted, convoluted journey uh, through the marketplace that we have is evidence that we don't recognize his value among the choices. 
we don't recognize his value among the chaos. The problem isn't just that there are so many options out there. The problem is that we don't see him as the one thing in the store that is worth millions and millions and millions of times more than any other item that is stocked. We don't see who he is. So we wander around the store of life in a daze, shopping for all kinds of things that we don't need. So we don't stride through the marketplace as we follow Jesus. We're wobbly, we're distracted, and our attention is just captured by the pretty packaging. Uh, we have way more choice than people in Luke's day had, um, but they still had a similar environment. This is what Luke's speaking to when he says, It seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account to you about Jesus, right? He's followed all things. He's followed his whole culture. He's looked at the whole deal, but he's zeroing in on the life of Jesus and says, it makes sense for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So what uh, Luke's orderly account is designed to do for us and we're really just repeating the theme of the whole series here, is to help us find our map through Walmart to find that one item of value, to help us see uh, that the price tag on it is one that we can handle and to see the value of the product as something that is eternal. And for us to know among the choices, among the choices in the first century world that Jesus absolutely and completely stood out as what Luke believed and what you and I have come to believe as ultimately uh, not just a politician, not just a rabbi, but ultimately the Son of God. And so the book is designed to take the eyewitnesses and to help us uh, look at all of the other characters in culture, but to focus in on Jesus and to see him um, as the absolute center. Uh, there were other choices in the culture. You could capitulate to Rome and you could just be under the thumb of the Roman soldiers and not worry about it and just live your quiet life, kind of doing uh, the things that you needed to do to survive and to stay afloat. You could be a Pharisee. The Pharisees were passionate about following the law and hopes that that would attract Messiah. And if they followed the law well enough, then Messiah would come and save them. An ultimately religious framework that uh, didn't ultimately attract Messiah. It, it caused him to actually challenge them. There were the Sadducees who were the rich intellectual elite. Uh, they kind of were in bed with Rome and just trying to appease and to keep their position and maintain it. Uh, they would have been like the liberals of their time. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, they, they would have just softened on a whole bunch of important theological issues that the Pharisees would have thought were uh, important. There were zealots. They were the people who just said, like, forget all this religious stuff. Let's just band together. Let's fight. Let's kick out Rome. Let's create an army. Let's get this done. There were the Essenes who were saying, hey, come with us. Come out into the desert. Come out into the wilderness. Uh, hang out with us. We're going to ignore all of this crazy politics stuff, and we're just going to be a faithful community off on our own. There were pagans uh, worshiping pagan gods, and there were merchants from every part of the world coming through this crossroads of trade uh, from Asia and from Africa and from Europe. Uh, so it was a multicultural place. So the people in Jesus' time had all of these choices, all of these options uh, before them. So Luke wants Theophilus in that mix to see Jesus as the one worthy of 
your allegiance, the one and only and the true king. And so that's what we've looked at in these past weeks, Jesus' credentials. Uh, we've looked at his mission last week, and this week we're looking at the distinct nature of his upside-down kingdom, the distinct nature of who he was, what was different about him, and and what made him a person who stood out from among uh, the confusing choices that were around in that day. Now, the way we want to do that is... Uh, Maybe not just from an analytical perspective, looking at it from the outside in, but I want to try to bring you, if I can, into the life of a first century woman. Uh, we're going to look a few minutes in a few minutes at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, and it's, it's named, you'll see the title in your Bible, the uh, Forgiveness, Jesus Forgives a Sinful Woman. We're going to try to look at it uh, through her eyes. Um, and help you understand what it was like to be in that world. And it will help you understand what it's like to be in our world and how to choose Jesus from among the crowd, to choose Jesus from among the clutter. Um, and just, a, just an aside, an apology for this, this image here. Um, this is a known image if you're watching a TV show called uh, or the, um, the Chosen on YouTube. This is actually Mary Magdalene. I'm not meaning for her to represent Mary Magdalene here, but just a first century woman who is at a particular pay, space and place in society. So I want to get into her life and just imagine where she is at. So imagine that you're in Judea. It's the first century. Uh, the temple is operating. Uh, Rome is occupying. Uh, and you're a prostitute. You're uh, not the lowest of the low in that industry. Uh, you're somewhere up the chain in a little way. Uh, you have some ability to save some resources. Uh, we see later in the story that she has an alabaster jar, so it means that she's not the bottom of the barrel. She is, is somehow involved in management, or maybe she owns a brothel or whatever, but she is a prostitute. So that means she is shunned uh, by people in her culture. That means that uh, she doesn't have status, she doesn't have place. She, like you and I, we worry just about where we belong in our culture all the time. This has put her in a position where she knows a bit about politics and a little bit about business. Uh, she unfortunately knows this uh, from her clients. She knows this from uh, the Johns. She knows this from the people who hire her and hire the girls who uh, work under her. She's basically used, and she's thrown away, and she's judged, and she's criticized as being unclean. She sees the brokenness of the world better than anyone else. Uh, the competing powers, the competing ideologies, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the Zealots, the pagans, and she knows their ideologies because they've all hired her. And we know that from historical record, even among the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people who judged her uh, with religious ire were also, there were corrupt members of those castes who also hired her and engaged in prostitution. So she saw the corruption. Uh, she saw the, the man who slept with her and then who in public judged her and criticized her for who she was and what she was. Um, but at the same time, uh, and, and in, in all that, she knows that in her heart, she doesn't want to have allegiance to any of it. And isn't that like us? Like we see all of these things competing for our attention, but there's something inside of us that we know that they're all empty. 
We know that there's corruption. We know we can't follow this politician or that politician, this ideology or that ideology, because there is no one who acts out their ideology with integrity and with purity. So like her, we see uh, the corruption in the world around us and we wonder, what do we do with it? So she's a victim of this culture and of this, but she also knows deep down that there is still Yahweh. There is still God. And that more than any of the shame and rejection that she hears from people, more than any of the shouts in the street, like she would hear catcalls and she would hear judgment shouted at her in the street. But more than any of that, she knows she's not lived up to who she's meant to be. She knows enough about the law of God given to the ancient Israelites to know that she is a sinner. She knows who she is as well. She's honest about the oppression over her, but she's honest about her own darkness within her. There's shame from others. And it's true of us. Uh, there's challenges when we pit ourselves against our society and things uh, make life hard for us. We externalize our problems, but when we have quiet moments, we realize that the greatest problem is our sin. The greatest problem is inside of ourself. So like everyone else, she is just hoping for Messiah. Someone who can set the nation right. Someone who can quiet the clamorous voices. Someone who can wade through the crazy politics. And something, someone that she can follow with her whole heart. And she begins to hear whispers. Just whispers of Jesus. She's heard some weird stories about his birth. Uh, she's heard something about him having been from David's line, so maybe he qualifies to be the Messiah. He sure seems popular. He's an amazing teacher. There's this crazy story of him when he was a kid teaching in the temple. And, and he was like messing up the, uh, the teachers of the law when he was like 12 years old. And, and she's heard his teaching like th there's nothing like it. He speaks with such authority. And isn't he the one that John the Baptist was talking about? Isn't he that one that uh, he, John the Baptist was saying was ultimately the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world? She's hearing his credentials. All of these stories would have followed Jesus everywhere he went. People talked, people whispered, people asked questions, who is this? And the stories were transmitted from person to person in the space and time, the way that culture moved. And those are the stories, those stories of the eyewitnesses that Luke was listening to. She says he's teaching about the kingdom of God, but he's doing it totally upside down. His closest friends are fishermen. And text collectors, it's like some bizarro, upside-down world. Those, those people, they're just like me. Those people are, are, are just like me. Everybody looks down on them, just like people look down on me. What is a tax collector doing with him? Maybe I could be with him. He's being a king, but he's not just being a king for the muckety-mucks. It kind of feels like I could be part of this. 
kind of feels like I could be part of his, his crowd, part of his family. His teaching is crazy. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Man, if that's what blessed is, I am blessed. I have got nothing. I've got nothing. I'm the poor of the earth. I know my need. If he's saying the poor are blessed, that's me. And he's sharing his meals with tax collectors. He's healing lepers. He's healing blindness. He's healing fevers. He's even raised this guy from the dead. We see that in earlier in chapter 7. Uh, and, and, and these people, they're freaking out. They're excited. They're, they've really seen something. They're not lying. This is the real deal. I know these people. They're not making this up. And there are so many stories about him. This can't be fake. This is, this is real. Obviously, this Jesus is sent from God. There's one story from out in the countryside of Judea that she can, she can hardly believe. It's this paralyzed guy that had crazy committed friends, and they ripped a hole in the roof of this guy's house. Jesus was inside teaching, and they started ripping off the mud and ripping through the boards and the straw and made a hole, and on ropes they lowered this paralyzed guy down into the middle of the room. They made a huge commotion and a terrible mess, and the crazy thing is that Jesus healed them. He went in there on ropes, falling down through the ceiling, and he walked out carrying his mat it's an incredible miracle but that's honestly that's not what it is that got me uh there were a couple of people who were there who said the whole thing was actually about jesus pronouncing forgiveness that this guy's sins were forgiven not only was he walking but he was walking he was striding spiritually he's acting this Jesus is acting like a true king, like a king for all the people. Prayer, claiming the forgiveness of sins, that's not normal king stuff. That's not Herod's stuff. That's, that's God's stuff. That's God's stuff. I thought that was only something God could do. I mean, I could deal with the Sadducees, and I can deal with the Pharisees, and I can deal with all of their corrupt stuff, but my own guilt, that's what keeps me up at night. Anyway, that's why I'm here. Uh, there's no way this is just a man. I've got to see him for myself. And that's inside the mind for you and me to just peer inside the mind of a prostitute in the first century. And that's what Luke is trying to do. There are hundreds of characters like this. There's a very important book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and I've referenced it a number of times, where uh, the author tracks through uh, people like this, uh, people like Simon the Pharisee, uh, people whose names and dates and houses, locations are listed in the scriptures and weaves it all together to help us see that the stories of Jesus just simply could not have been falsified because the writers told you who to go to talk to to verify them. This is a story with authenticity. This can't be faked. His credentials are real. Credentials are real. 
And in all of the crowd of competing ideas, this woman that we're about to to read about recognized Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 7, 36 to 50. If you have Bibles, feel free to turn. But the words will be up on the screen. We're back to this prostitute. Now, we don't know what stories she actually heard. We don't know what encounters she maybe had with Jesus. We don't know what messages uh, she heard him speak. And we don't know what miracles she might have seen. But she comes to the place in her journey where when she hears that Jesus is in town, she has to go and she has to see him. And it reads like this. This is her response to the recognition of who he is as king. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Jesus is reclining there. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So in that day, the homes were open. Uh, there would have been no glass on the windows, no double-pane glass to keep the cold, frigid air out. Uh, the doors would have been maybe sometimes curtains or sometimes wood swinging fairly widely. And it was common uh, when a famous or important person hosted a meal uh, for people just off the street or people who were interested to come. Like There was no news service. There was no Twitter. There was no way to find out what was being said in the circles of society. So people would just come and they would poke their heads in the window. It was very open homes, very different from us. And people would walk into the rooms while people are having dinner. And so imagine that Jesus has come uh, into the house of this Pharisee. Uh, He's being uh, fed a meal, but he's really being fed a meal with a strange agenda because the Pharisees who are there are questioning him and challenging him and trying to get him uh, to slip up. And Mary comes uh, in that space to uh, see him. She knows she's going to be able to walk into the house. She knows she's going to uh, be able to get there and to get near him and to hear what he has to say. But she also knows that she's a known woman. Uh, She knows she's a prostitute. She knows she's not going to be welcome. She knows she's going to put a pall on their gathering, that they're going to look at her. They're going to judge her. There's going to be criticism and glares at her uh, from some, and as we said earlier, catcalls from others. But she's figured out who Jesus is, and she has to see him. So she goes digging uh, into the corner uh, of her room uh, for a precious treasure that she has saved money for, maybe for years, and set it aside, uh, a jar of alabaster um, filled with an expensive perfume. Uh, She knows that he's king. They might not know, but she knows that he's a king. And she's going to take something to anoint him with. She's going to show them who they're talking to, who they're criticizing, who they're challenging. So coming from her home with an alabaster jar of perfume uh, tucked inside uh, her cloak, she begins to push her way through the crowd. Again, the people are glaring at her. The people are maybe some shouting at her. Maybe they're crowding the door so that she can't get in. Uh, She's not in a comfortable place. And she can see that Jesus hasn't been honored. Uh, Somebody at the door is talking about it and saying, man, they didn't even wash his feet. They're just yapping at him. 
Uh, they didn't uh, let him wash his hands. Uh, they didn't. They didn't take care of him. They did, they're not treating him with honor. And something is rising up in her in this. There's that kind of a holy and a righteous anger. Like Jesus has not been recognized. I know who he is. He's the King. Why can't they see it? Why can't they see who he is? Her heart is burning, and as she stumbles into the room, she begins to weep. Her heart is breaking, and she finds herself at Jesus' feet with tears running down her face. She can't look at the confused, and judgment glares at her, and she hits her knees and falls down. And as she weeps at Jesus' feet, the tears are falling down her face, dropping on his feet, making muddy tracks down his toes. She doesn't have a towel. So she unbinds her hair and brings it over her shoulder and begins to dry his feet with her hair as she continues to weep. She can't stop. They don't see who he is. Her sobs are racking, her tears are falling, her, his feet are dirty. He's her king. And reaching inside her cloak, she takes an alabaster jar. And she can't reach his head to anoint him as you would a king. The way he reclines at the table, his feet are out behind him. So she gets as close as she can. She knows they'd shove him away anyway. And she pours the anointing oil on his feet. At least some of them will see who he is. And in that moment, she knows this is the only real thing that's ever happened to her. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, the kings, and the zealots, they've all disappeared. They're not even in her thinking. They're gone. And she is at the feet of her creator. She is worshiping him. Jesus and Simon are talking about her. Uh, she's paying attention, but she's just at the feet of Jesus. Uh, she hears just one word that out of all of that conversation resonates with her. And it's the word forgiveness. And that's the word that she's been longing most of all to hear. She knows he's more than an earthly king. Uh, she's seen it in his eyes. Just like that man that was lowered down through the ceiling, he can forgive her sins too. Uh, he's walking in authority. If he says that to me, if he says I'm forgiven, then I am free. She knows in her heart that she is dealing not just with some rabbi, but dealing with someone who has authority. And in verse 48, he speaks, and we're leaving out a piece of the story. I urge you to just read the whole passage. But he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? They know it's God. And he says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. 
go in peace. While they're saying, who is this? She knows who he is. She is seen in the marketplace of ideas and ideologies and competing powers. She has seen the one thing in the room that has any value at all. And she's pushed through her discomfort and she's pushed through her fear. She's pushed through the shame and she finds herself worshiping at his feet. Am I the sinful one who will recognize the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and worship at his feet? Or is he a choice among many others? And I'm just saying, who is this? Who do I want to be in this story? Do I want to be Simon the Pharisee? Or do I want to hit my knees? Do I want to be the one who worships? The solution. Uh, to the problem of our wobbly and distracted and unfocused lives is to recognize him, to see him for who he is. Almost every decision you face, almost every challenge that's in front of you gets clearer when you see him first. We want to live in the singular, powerful joy of worship and of adoration. And once we've recognized him, every other love and every other priority falls in line. But finding meaning starts right here. Finding purpose for your life, for my life, starts right here. If you want to stride with any confidence at all into the journey that God has for you, your striding starts with kneeling. Your striding starts with brokenness. Your striding starts with putting aside everything to breaking open your alabaster jar, the values that you've held dearly and pouring them out at his feet and saying, I'm going to follow you. That's what Luke is wanting to happen in your heart. That's what Luke is wanting to happen in my heart. And that's what we need to happen in the heart of our church. That's what we need to happen in our community if we want to see the world changed around us. It has to start on our knees. It has to start with the recognition that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.